0: For the dangerous fishing boat in New York City. <laughs> <laughs> wow! I forgot my own terrible pun. Oh, just go for it. Live from the Mundangerous Fishing Boat in New York City, I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Ishan, And welcome to episode 57 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're
1: talking about plot hooks and offering a few of our own. But first, the party gets a new job in the Morning Glory campaign. And later, the knife fighter takes a stab at making daggers more useful in
0: the character creation forge. Haha, <laughs> puns abound.
1: <laughs> I don't get it. <laughs>
0: yeah, you would. So before we get started, I just want to thank everybody who submitted a new five-star review for us on iTunes in the past couple weeks. We got a really strong response. We really appreciate the support.
1: Yes, we've been able to fill the hat from which we will pull the winner, and we will announce that next week.
0: We are recording this before the contest is actually over, so we can't announce the winner today. We will announce it on the 8th of September. 2016, if you're listening to this at some point in the far future. <laughs> All right, you should where are we in the Morning Glory campaign?
1: Well, the party has detonated a disjunction bomb and returned the nation of Seer
0: to the continent of Corvair. Much to everyone's disappointment, slash surprise. <laughs> <laughs> so it's important to remember in Eberron, the last war was fought for 100 years. The day of mourning happened, the moorland appeared. The nation of Seer disappeared and everyone just went, uh, so I guess we'll stop fighting then. Where right, Was that you? Because it wasn't us. Uh, we'd like that to not happen to us. It's been a couple years since that happened. So the war is still fresh in everybody's mind. In a lot of ways, countries are still planning on that war breaking out again.
1: No one really understood if it was caused by, you know, all of the new magics that were being used in the war, which is one of the reasons that people really sort of drew back and said, okay, I guess peace is probably a good idea. Maybe there's some sort of super weapon out there. We don't really know what's going on. Now, the party understands now that Seer was not actually destroyed, that Moorland was not the devastation left over. They were actually swapped as part of a huge
0: battle between two abstract concepts. But the important part for the setting, as we know it, is that no one is exactly happy (laughs) to see Seer returned, right? They were at war. Five countries were at war, four countries are currently at peace, and introducing them back into the mix doesn't necessarily mean that everybody's going to be happy now. It's just one more combatant that's come back into the fray.
1: There are certainly people who would say that Seer was the main instigator of the war, and in fact, it was the monarch of Seer who initially objected to the line of succession a hundred years ago. So a lot of people are very concerned about what's happening. However, also remember that within the Morning Glory campaign, what's happened to seer Right. They've been trapped in a pocket dimension
0: for about 25 years. Yeah, they're not exactly coming out here with their legion standing at the gates and ready to charge out into the world and conquer. Right. They're pretty beat up and beaten
1: down. They've been in a pocket dimension that was a combination of Dolor and Maybar, which basically means they were unable to use healing spells. Every time someone died, they would rise from the dead as a horrible undead abomination. They spent 25 years fighting off undead incursions constantly, and the only thing that kept them from being wiped out almost immediately was a host of angels who were released during the day of mourning who have now joined forces with the leadership of seer and queen danelle who is still alive to form a council that rules the nation and so now as seer reappears upon the continent All of the other nations are sending missives and messages magically to find out exactly what is going on. And Donnell and a bunch of angels are fielding all of these questions.
0: Yeah, they're like, so how did you come back? And Donnell's like, oh, it was those cool adventurers who helped us. (laughs) And Breland is like, you mean those terrorists who attacked Sharn and murdered one of our most upstanding citizens? (laughs)
1: Those adventurers? Which happened like three days ago at this point. Right. right. A horrible terrorist attack. An entire tower of Sharn was destroyed. 6,000 people died. A major political
0: assassination the day after.
1: <laughs> yes, Merrick Stacanath actually caused the tower to collapse, pinned it on the party. The party then took what they needed
0: from him. <laughs> I mean, effectively assassinated him, right? Yeah we, yeah. we broke onto a ship, we killed his bodyguard, and then we killed him, and we took his stuff, or at least the important stuff. I mean, He did deserve it. I'm not apologizing. He was trying to murder you. I'm not apologizing. I'm just (laughs) saying, like, from an outside perspective, we don't look like such great characters. No, not so much.
1: And neither does Danelle, right? Because she's got a history with these people. Yes. Boronel remembers her. That was like four years ago to him. Right. Breland and Sear were on better terms than some of the other nations. Thrain hated them. Yeah. But it helps that when Danelle is communicating with the other monarchs via distance, right? Magical communication. She is flanked by a host of angels. It's very helpful that she's literally standing next to a solar.
0: I mean, obviously, who she hoodwinked, right? <laughs> I, that's the only possible <laughs> Tricky Danelle!
1: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Cardinal Crozen in Thrain is definitely thinking that.
0: Uh, yeah. <laughs> which is a whole other subplot.
1: <laughs> but, the Treaty of Thronehold, which was only hammered into place about two years ago, was initially negotiated without Seer at the table because there was no one there. And so it quickly becomes apparent that the treaty needs to be revisited. And in fact, there needs to be a second Council of Thronehold with all of the monarchs now in attendance.
0: Yeah. So Thronehold is the traditional seat of political power in Corvair, it is like an island fortress, basically. Mm-hmm.
1: Right. It was the seat of power for the Empire of Galifar before it broke apart. And now it's ruled by this independent council that just sort of manages an empty castle, keeps it nice and tidy. Uh, it's occasionally used for ceremonies, but nobody actually spends any time there.
0: It's a lovely convention space. You can rent it at a great <laughs> discount nowadays because there's not a lot of conventions going on in Thronehold. Carpeting's getting a little faded, though. Right, yeah.
1: And <laughs> not many vendors. <laughs> So the monarchs decide that they're all going to travel to Thronehold like they did a few years prior, and they're going to renegotiate this treaty. Danelle is invited this time. She has convinced the other monarchs to withhold judgment on whether the party is actually guilty. But then, in a show of faith that the party had not necessarily expected from her, she then appoints them as her bodyguards to escort her to the negotiations. So they will be attending.
0: Yeah, which we weren't sure about. <laughs> like, you know, Kalik being Siren was all in on this. This is a great idea. Great. This, this is, is his a, queen. This is a great honor. I will serve my queen. Mm-hmm. And Brand, who is <laughs> Thrainish, is going, <laughs> Uh, I have to do this in front of my own head of state. Right. I think my cardinal's going to be there. Right, and Cardinal Crozen <laughs> is one of the people I have been trying to report to on, on events. Right. <laughs> Who I'm not sure that I trust, but at the same time, like, I'm pretty sure I should not just look like
1: this. <laughs> right. This is also the time that the party finds out that the Keeper of the Flame, Jayla Darren, will not be in attendance. She is not feeling well.
0: Which sets off... I mean, and this is probably <laughs> a whole separate discussion of Bran's private mistrust of his own nation and the Church of Thrain and the Inquisition that he's a part of and and basically everybody who isn't him and one <laughs> or two of the current party members.
1: The party boards a Larander airship and is very on edge because they fully expect that there will be fireballs from the sky and a dragon attack and horrible death rays.
0: Oh yeah, we requested to teleport. <laughs> right. and we were told no we have to take an airship we cannot let anything appear out of the ordinary so the party as they do
1: preps a lot for this journey and it turns out to be pretty uneventful actually huh they get to Thronehold. they are greeted by the staff they enter the large castle and negotiations begin
0: and we'll find out how those went awry next week
1: So this week we're talking about plot hooks. These are the barbs that a GM uses or that a player hands a GM so that they can stick them into characters and into stories to drag
0: them along in different directions. Yeah, so we have lots of ideas about games that we'd like to run and not nearly enough time to plan and actually play them. (laughs) So this is us sharing some of those ideas with you. You know, we switch off GMs
1: and... I'm thinking that I'm going to take another shot at it relatively soon. And I keep being like, okay, I've got like three ideas and you can pick among them. Now it's four.
0: Actually, it's five. So (laughs) one of them will be a play by post game shortly. (laughs) It's quite possible. All right. So what makes a good plot hook?
1: Well, it inspires the GM and it gets players excited to actually play, you know, rather than just showing up every week. Oh, what are we going to do this time? You really want to be in a position where players feel like, oh, man, you know, I, I want to go to the session because I want this thing to happen. I want to make it happen or I want to find out what's coming.
0: Yeah, I want to explore that. I want to see how that ends. I want to learn how this goes wrong. I want to be a part of that idea of that story.
1: Yeah, we've all been in situations either as a player or as a GM where we're sitting there and people are like, uh, so I guess I don't really know where we go now or what we're supposed to do so does anyone have any ideas
0: well it's a sandbox you can go wherever you anywhere, want yeah, anywhere. yeah, but you you didn't tell me any place that i want to go <laughs> so what do i do But it's up
1: to you go anywhere you
0: want right <laughs> yeah. uh, okay all right cool throw me some hooks
1: this is where the appropriate plot hook can get your players very invested remember it
0: doesn't mean railroading you're drawing players into a story you're not hitching them onto it and telling them they have to go along with the plot right and how it plays out is up to them yeah and that's that's important you want your plot hook to have a variety of different directions that the players could be drawn into they don't have to approach it a single way it isn't go to a then b then c then d it's all of these things are out there they interact in their own ways how do you want to be a part of that story
1: And put enough of them out there so that maybe a player looks at a particular one and says, I don't want to be a part of that story.
0: Yeah, and that's fine. Because it's a rich plot hook, so (laughs) they've got other things to do. (laughs) (laughs) If that mysterious bard who's been sitting in the tavern for the past six nights and they just don't care to interact with him, fine. They don't want to hear about the Thieves' Guild. Moving on. Perfect. It means that they'll spend six weeks doing
1: something they actually want to do. Exactly. Exactly. Now, hooks need to stay manageable within the parameters in the context of an RPG or a tabletop game. You know, some are just too
0: unwieldy and unmanageable. Yeah, you've got to remember that this is a few hours at a time, usually with weeks or days at least, but usually often weeks in between sessions with people who aren't doing this full time. They're not professional writers probably they're not professional actors they aren't thinking about this 24 7 they aren't living in this world the way that an author is (laughs) so remember you know the da vinci code sounds really cool and it's a fun read but trying to set that up for six players man like not possible Mm -mm. just not going to happen but you can steal the great ideas from it and the great themes from it and pull those into your game as plot hooks
1: right sprinkled them through i think of the you know one of the first scenes is you know the the dead body laid out ritualistically Mm -hmm. and then the realization made by the main character Uh, tom hanks (laughs) audrey tattoo hello (laughs) she's obviously the main character right uh yeah i don't remember his actual name But the realization that this wasn't a ritual murder, this was when the victim died, he presented himself this way to offer clues. And that's a fascinating scene that you can include in an RPG that many different characters can interact with and figure out.
0: Yeah, but you can't have the level of red herring and and false leads and everything mm-hmm. else that go into a complicated novel in your RPG because you will just end up with frustrated players. They're not going to follow
1: specific breadcrumbs to specific places.
0: Right. Okay, so let's share some of our ideas for hooks.
1: So this is actually one we kind of jointly came up with last week when we were talking about Polymorph Fromage. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) the uh, sequester spell. In 5th edition, but, you know, this could work for any kind of similar spell, it basically places a person in stasis and then makes them invisible and
0: undetectable. So they, they basically are sort of taken out of the world. It ends if it's dispelled, but there are also conditions that can end it without dispelling it. Right. You don't age. So
1: I thought this would actually be a really interesting way to run almost a kind of winter soldier game where there is a cabal of wizards and powerful heroes. And these wizards place the heroes into stasis with sequester who then slumber until they're needed. And then, you know, the wizards are still living in the real world and they grow old and they pass down the tradition and they die off. And then new generations come and go and come and go caretaking these heroes' bodies. And then when the next great challenge that faces the world hundreds of years later comes along, these are completely new wizards who have never experienced anything like this. But, you know, they have this tradition handed down and they awaken the heroes who then go out do whatever it is that they need to take care of fight off the tarasque repel an invasion right. of mind flayers and yeah. their life is basically just kill the tarasque take a nap kill the tarrasque right they come back and then the wizards place them in a sequestered sleep again and this just keeps continuing
0: one thing i like about this is it gives you a chance to really explore long histories of a world mm-hmm. right as a gm you get to start out in ancient rome And over the course of the next, whatever, 10 sessions, right, you could end up in fantasy medieval Europe because the world has changed while the heroes were away.
1: Yeah, and it's a great opportunity to really showcase how the players' actions are impacting the world. Because, you know, in a normal game, you win and then, yay, there's a bit of an epilogue. But here you get to see how nations were affected hundreds of years down the line by your accomplishments. You can get a very long timeline advancement. So I personally would probably play this in something like 5th edition uh, mid-levels, around level 10 to level 12, right before you get
0: teleport. Well, the the problem is that the sequester spell is actually 7th level, right? Which is why you have a cabal of mages. Who, yeah, but why don't the mages just go do the work themselves? No, no, a cabal. They, they gather together to cast a spell that one of them couldn't do alone. Oh, uh, okay. So it's actually like a ritual that they perform that exactly. gives the effects of a sequester spell. Gotcha.
1: Basically, I'm I'm making things up. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. that's fine. <laughs> it's a, it's called Plot Spell. Yes, I love that. That's my favorite spell, actually. Any spell, I believe there was actually any spell in Greater Any Spell in 3.5. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Level 10 to 12 keeps things from really getting off the rails. If you think about it, this is sort of like a series of one-shots, and I would probably do five to seven sessions because, you know, after a while, I think the premise will get a little bit old.
0: Yeah, and the the idea of having these types of characters really advancing doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me right maybe. the
1: world advances and then that's how they have their impact
0: yeah but the characters kind of stay the same and exactly that, that's sort of the challenges increase because the world has moved on around them
1: right now they need to deal with what, what is this moving carriage right right and they still have you know these ancient powerful weapons and, and equipment and, you know maybe they actually add to their arsenals with tech right yeah it's one of those mission-based campaigns think about like the a team or charlie's angels which means that you really need to make sure that the missions are quick enough to fit into a single session. That means like maximum four hours most likely. So there's not a whole lot of time for exposition or plot development during the session. I'd probably keep that to emails and you know above the table talk in between sessions. Yeah,
0: you kind of set up the briefing that the heroes get as they awaken, right? You set that up offline. Here's what the sages have told you. Here's why they've called you forth into the world. Go take action. <laughs> right.
1: Heroes, here's the problem. Right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Another challenge, I think, is you're going to need to tie all of these together so that the threats aren't just random threats that occur, right? There has to be some overarching progress that they can make after their third or fourth or fifth adventure, right? They, they need to start seeing a pattern emerge that they can sort of address at the source so eventually they can retire,
1: Right. I would definitely have the threats that they're facing actually be stemming from one main source or one main enemy that they eventually discover maybe about halfway through the arc. Now, suddenly, it's much more driven. When they're actually awake, they have two tasks. One is defeat the enemy that they're facing right now, and two is find out as much information about their real adversary yeah. so that they're more prepared next time. Yeah. The other really neat thing, though, is if they fail... The story can actually continue. As long as they don't die. Well, if there were a TPK, I would actually have it that the like mages sacrifice themselves or a bunch of mages sacrifice themselves to like teleport their bodies away and then sequester them.
0: So they're like sequestered dead, but they'll be revivified. <laughs> so
1: it basically, TPK, fade to black, next session, you wake up. It's 200 years later. Yeah. Here are the horrible things that have happened in the meantime because you failed. Right, right
0: one thing you want to make sure that you, you take into account here is that the world needs to actually feel different after each of their sort of returns. Mm-hmm. You know, I said ancient Rome to medieval fantasy because in the real world, you know, the <laughs> the, the difference in technology and the difference in thought and all those types of things was, was pretty stark contrast. Right. Right. But in a and d fantasy type setting, there's actually not that much difference between them. You know, it's like, all right. I mean, we're still using swords, right? So what's the difference? So you want to think of, of challenges that are going to tax them, that are going to address different parts of their character. So magic might advance over the course of the world, but their magic is static. Mm-hmm. Or I think a great way to end this would be fighting off like a demagogue. Just a powerful politician who uses magic and those types of things you know, to advance his agenda, but his real strength is just that everybody has faith in him. <laughs> You've got to somehow depose that person in a way that you can't just go and attack them because then you become the problem, right? You are an assassin sent after what is heralded as good for the people but bad for the world.
1: I love the idea that the values of the world are changing, too. You know, in the early sessions, it's like, oh, their enemies, go slaughter them. Right, right. And then it's, well, I mean, that's not really due process, is it? we have the rule of law now, so... (laughs) We're civilized.
0: Yeah. (laughs) The people have to reject him. (laughs) He can't simply die, or else he'll never die. (laughs) He'll be martyred.
1: (laughs) Mechanically, as a GM, though, you are going to need to spend that time between
0: sessions almost rewriting your world. Yeah, that's going to be the big challenge. This is great if you're having like one session a month. You make Mm -hmm. every session epic, (laughs) but then you get three and a half weeks to figure out how to do the next one. Because this is only maybe
1: five to seven to 10 sessions, you don't need to create an entire world from scratch. And I would actually, I would do this in a homebrew world. I wouldn't do it with a setting that's already built because that's so much to change. I would do a relatively vague World that the players will understand. They'll get where they fit into it and what it's like. But then when things change, you change the name of nations, geopolitical boundaries move. Heck, maybe even physical boundaries move, you know, depending on their actions. Yeah. Those are things that you can gloss over. They understand that it happened. You don't need to go into extreme detail because, well, it's not going to
0: matter next week. Right. Yeah. Okay. So for our second plot hook this week, my idea. The adventurers are hired by a minor noble, sort of in an outward-lying province, to train the town guard out on the frontier. So, of course, (laughs) when they get hired, right, they're kind of oversold on the job. They're probably minorly successful adventurers. Maybe they have a little bit of reputation. This noble isn't a particularly grand noble house, you know, they're obviously a reason they're looking for adventurers to come do their work for them, but it's still better than any of the offers they have in town. So yeah, they'll make the trip. You hope. Well, yeah. Yeah. But of course, when they get there, the guards are in much worse shape than expected. You know, they're less disciplined, worse equipped, less experienced, And then... The threat whatever they're facing is going to be much bigger than expected and probably also escalating pretty quickly right so what seemed like a cushy gig you know just train some guys it won't be a big deal has turned into uh uh-oh like we might be overrun by goblins and we're going to be stuck here too i think this is a
1: nice opportunity to basically throw a bigger reward at your party than is warranted by the job that they're taking so you can be like Ten thousand gold pieces for like this cushy gig that means they'll probably take it right when they get there it's a much more difficult job so it's actually maybe a a fair reward for what they're going to end up having to do yeah
0: the pound of flesh that they're going to pay for that (laughs) (laughs) so i'm thinking they're having trouble with goblins raiding the area farms well it turns out the goblins have raided so heavily that there's barely enough food to sustain them right they're almost under siege from the goblins And then like any job you do with the nobility, there's always the chance that the nobility is just going to screw you out of your payment in the end anyway. So you've got to figure out some way for the party to get a little bit of leverage to make sure everyone holds up their end of the bargain. So what system would you use? I mean, I think this one's a 5e. Any type of fantasy system I think would work just fine, but I like 5e, right? So Mm -hmm. I'm thinking somewhere around level 3 to 5 somewhere where they're not super powerful, right? This isn't a problem they could just handle on their own, mm-hmm. but they do have sort of a notch above your everyday commoner that uh, they do have some experience that they could impart and some training that they could provide.
1: I really like that. This isn't something you see often. You have low-level adventurers who still sort of get to be warlords or or deal in troop management because they're basically telling these like very low-level soldiers where to go, how to defend from the goblins and things like that, sending them out on sorties. Yeah. Or, you know, positioning them at certain areas
0: along the barricade. Yeah, that's actually one of the challenges of of running this is you need to have enough things going on that the players feel like they've got to send their troops (laughs) to go deal with it, right? (laughs) And they can't just go handle the problem themselves. Because if it's just one big raid at a farm, the PCs will just go out there and wreck the goblins and move on right Mm -hmm. but if the goblins are attacking in eight places at once well now we've got to divide our forces we've got to decide what's more important to protect and which one should we sacrifice and you know should we stay together as a party or should we each lead a different group and and those kind of decisions right and getting into that makes me wonder if there might be a system that could handle managing hirelings that sort of way a little better than 5e Mm because 5e doesn't have a natural subsystem for that yeah you kind of need to make it up yeah which you know skill checks that's why they exist <laughs> <laughs> you know you can lead from the front with your sword and your attack rolls or you can lead from the back with your persuasion
1: <laughs> slash intimidation
0: right <laughs> this would be good as like an arc for part of a larger campaign right so maybe like a three to six session and if the players are super into it you can maybe go even a little longer
1: yeah I could see it nice as sort of like the second or third arc of um, a campaign that's more low level now and the players can actually look at these grunts and go, ugh, were we that bad? What are they
0: doing? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You don't even have a subclass. That guy just swung his sword and cut off his own foot. (laughs) (laughs) Once. Yeah. (laughs) That guy is the worst crit fumbler. (laughs) So I can definitely see it
1: being difficult to get the players the information that they need in order to actually make informed decisions without either, you know, just lying to them or accidentally giving it all to them.
0: So they have all of the info. When you have any level of intrigue, I think that's always a challenge, right? Is if I give you everything so you can see the whole picture, is it still fun to play the game, right? You can now appreciate how smart I am as the GM, but you don't want to play the game anymore because you know the secret. I think you had a good idea of you just pay them more than they think they would have at this level, right? And the shine of the gold pieces kind of makes them not question the details that they should probably be more concerned about.
1: Yeah. And that hopefully overrides another potential challenge, which is the
0: PCs decide that this is just way too much work. It's not worth it. We're not invested here. Let's leave. Yeah. You've got to find something to come in behind them and prevent that. Gold. Uh, yeah, It could be. But at some point, no reward is worth dying, right? So if you have particularly craven PCs, they might just walk out.
1: Yeah. I think a nice thing to do here would be they're not going to walk away immediately most likely you know they're going to right. try a few things and fail spectacularly and then decide to leave but those failures offer the nobility leverage
0: yeah yeah you know i mean maybe it becomes an actual siege right because of their failures early on that just they literally can't leave now because they're surrounded and encircled. circle mm-hmm. another challenge And this is very system specific, but you want to make sure that you're picking opponents and challenges that, like I said, the PCs can't just go handle themselves. A gang of goblins, most adventuring parties are going to say, okay, we're just going to go up to their cave and we're going to kill them all. And then your problem is solved. And I don't have to train your troops (laughs) because there's no more goblins. So you want to make sure that you've got a threat that they aren't just going to go do it hands-on, right? But it's still not so threatening that there's no point in training the guards because they're just going to get slaughtered
1: Mm -hmm. yeah you've really got to thread that needle
0: yeah like no number of guards that you train you know level zero commoner guards are going to be able to take down an adult dragon just doesn't work that way so you've got to pick some type of threat that's sort of on par with a single man
1: yeah I think sorties are your friend here lots of low level creatures but don't send them all at once yeah
0: waves of enemies Mm -hmm. are a great approach here
1: all right, so our next hook I call On the Run. You've got powerful heroes, but they've been framed. And they've got to escape or prove themselves innocent, but the entire time they need to lie low. Otherwise, they're going to get captured. And I personally think of this as a Star Wars game right after Order 66, a group of Padawans, like Jedi Padawans, who like their master sacrifices themselves to keep them all from getting killed by their clone troopers but now they're on the run from the entire empire. Wait, wait, Padawans or younglings? Oh god, no I'd never want to see a youngling, (laughs) they're basically Kender
0: (laughs) right, fine, Padawans
1: (laughs) Because if they're little kids, they just, you know pretend to not have force powers and then just like hang out in school. Well, and then
0: use all of their dark side powers. Oh yeah, that's true (laughs) That's, that's good too
1: I really like uh, the idea of running this in Edge of the Empire. It's a skill-heavy system, there's a lot of shades of gray, you've got those great dice that are gonna show you how, no matter what actions they take, it's not always going to be all good or all bad. It offers a lot of, like, subtlety.
0: So I agree, I think Edge of the Empire is a a great one for this kind of band on the run kind of thing, but what are you gonna have them do, (laughs) right? Like, they're running, but are they just running into a sandbox? I think that's one of the challenges of this kind of
1: scenario. First is, okay, they need to s- stay quiet, right? So what's to keep them from going to the dark side and just murdering anybody that they meet? Yeah. You can't tell on us if you're dead. Yeah, And, you know, maybe that's a particular kind of game you want to play. It's also
0: called the smuggler side. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but there needs to be some sort of end game here. What is the point of them running away? What are they running away to, you know? If you're not playing a Star Wars game, then I think there are a lot more options, like escape to which mountain i'm thinking of the original not the crappy one that just came out where the have these super powered kids who have a lot of abilities but you know they can't handle the entire u.s military so they need to be subtle and quiet about it they can use their abilities to sort of slip by and then eventually they make it to for lack of a better term home base you know where things are safe
0: to borrow from within the star wars canon right this is basically luke's beginning arc his parents are dead his aunt and uncle are killed he's on the run Mm -hmm. Right. And all he's trying to do is get to Alderaan. Well, well. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I mean, we we all know how that turned out. Right. Right. But it is his adventure of getting to Alderaan that then sets into motion all of the events of the original trilogy.
1: Mm -hmm. Basically, getting to the rebellion is probably the end game for this group. The difference I see with Luke's story is that tug of war they're going to have between we could get out of the situation really easily if we just use the force. Unfortunately, if we do that, then someone may notice us. So we may have to muddle through. And in fact, maybe I've been relying on the force a little too much.
0: Yeah, Uh, I don't know how to shoot. I only have a lightsaber. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Another thing that could be a problem for you is death is not going to be a very good consequence here. Right. Because it's going to be very challenging to replace dead PCs when you've started out with, you're the last of the Jedi (laughs) post-Order 66. Right. (laughs)
1: What happens if you get caught? Right. You need consequences that offer some nuance rather than just you get murdered.
0: Right. And you also don't want them to be that, like, bond villainy kind of like Mm -hmm. oh i will take you and put you into my secret lab and i will make you watch as i undo your entire (laughs) and it's just like okay i'll just invite you to escape from this place (laughs) right like it's got to be it's got to be some middle ground there between like you're just a a speed bump and you're dead your story's over
1: right well jail is always a good option like this and i think the kind of adversary that you're up against can really define what happens here it's very useful to have a large sort of faceless enemy a massive organization a government something like that but that isn't necessarily on the ground everywhere controlling everything it's not necessarily a big brother type society you have you know if you're caught yes of course the secret police are going to eventually hand you over to you know vader but in the meantime probably only one of you got caught So they need to question you to find out where the others are. They're not going to kill you yet. And this allows the others to mount a rescue. It allows you to
0: be the man on the inside. Yeah, and this is a great role for the NPCs to play, right? Mm -hmm. When their NPC ally gets caught, well, their ally is going to sing eventually, right? Eventually, Imperial Torture will do its thing. Another thing to think about, perhaps, is rather than running from your actual threat right instead of running from darth vader himself instead of running from actual imperials who are going to be much more regimented in their approach you're running from a network of imperial allies so it's bounty hunters who are looking for you Mm -hmm. right it is huts and smugglers and other petty criminals right who are just looking to make a quick buck (laughs) by fulfilling an imperial bounty and you happen to be that bounty Right. right. So it's it's the people that you can't trust that you're worried about, much more so than this arm's length adversary of the Empire itself. Mm-hmm.
1: And I think Star Wars or no, you should give the PCs some sort of intrinsic value to the people that they're trying to escape from. That gives them an incentive to keep them alive. You know, we want these Jedi alive because we want to turn them to the dark side. Or we want to use their
0: Jedi powers to... know enrich ourselves or whatever right
1: or you know use them to track down other jedi right who better to find force users than a force user right
0: or you know they've already stolen the the death star plans
1: (laughs) (laughs) we need to know who else they've given it to right
0: bothans was that was that (laughs) it's the second death star had bothans dying (laughs) there's a meme to remind you so my fourth hook was almost the same idea. It was just instead of heroes on the run, you're actually heroes going underground.
1: Yeah, yeah I like this one.
0: So rather than running from your threat, you are besieged and you have to stay under that threat's radar uh, right under their nose.
1: Yeah, I would say this time you do want the adversary to be almost big brother level Oh yeah, of
0: intrusive. Yeah, so I stole this... Right out of Morning Glory, actually, in in one of the conversations that we had on the show about the arc with Merrick's to when we were framed for destroying a tower in the city of Sharn, when he publicly accused us of being terrorists and all those things, you know, we had to go to the mattresses, the party. What if all we were trying to do was clear our name? Right. Or try to get out of Sharn and we didn't have all the resources that we had available. Right. Right,
1: If you couldn't just teleport willy nilly and you weren't actually actively involved in like a greater conspiracy.
0: Right. Yeah. If we if we didn't have any meta plot. (laughs) Right. (laughs) What if that was our plot, you know, and it's also pretty close to the theme of the Silver Spike, which is one of the novels in the Black Company series, because I only read long chronologies of (laughs) fantasy military campaigns. That's one of the series that I'm almost done with now. So the idea is you you know you go to ground they have to set up a network of informants and allies they they probably have an early betrayal that they have to overcome once they're safe and stable then they begin waging a war against this greater power in this city so i'm thinking for lack of a better term right almost like a terrorist campaign targeting that individual so you're you're weakening his different pillars of power so that ultimately his government or his faction or his house or whatever it is uh falls
1: so the first challenge that seems apparent to me is at what point do you end this arc like do you do the players actually need to overthrow a government or you know topple hitler
0: yeah that's the trick right is you need that level of buy in from the players they have to have characters that have that level of buy in if you want to go for that full arc so this is going to be a relatively long arc or long campaign. Yeah, I mean, probably 8 to 10 sessions, maybe even longer. If the players really embrace the fantasy punk kind of element of it, right? If they really enjoy the punk element, then yeah, you could stretch that quite a bit. I mean, it's that's basically a Shadowrun campaign, mm-hmm. right? It's all you're ever really doing is hiding from Big Brother and causing them problems. So would you run this in Shadowrun? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I would go for, I would stick with fantasy, but uh, something very low magic. So uh, fate can do that pretty well if you don't want very defined power sets. And if this isn't going to be super combat heavy, Warhammer fantasy, I think is really good because it's Mm. got that very dark and foreboding kind of tone to it as well. And if you get into combat, you're liable to die. So being smart and sneaky is going to be way more valuable, you know, from a political standpoint than being strong and bashing things over the head. Hmm. Uh, blades in the dark is a new system as well that's it's sort of still in development but it's centered around a lowly street gang trying to rise through the underworld ranks it's got similar themes you could kind of squint at it and rather than rising through the ranks right you're just trying to take out number one i mean i think that could work as well
1: i could see um dark heresy second edition as well because we have talked about before how the subtlety mechanic really breaks down at higher levels Yeah, for something low level, low XP and really lean hard on subtlety, I think that it's something
0: that could potentially work. Knight's Black Agents might work Mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. It it doesn't have the fantasy aesthetic that I was thinking of initially but the way that you spend resources to sort of build your capabilities right? I think is is a really interesting way to do it and it it handles sort of setting up your safe house and building that network and that sort of investigation kind of thing much better than it handles combat. (laughs) So (laughs) you could tone down the combat elements except for you know a kidnapping or an extraction or a hit very targeted elements of combat rather than using that as the broad conflict resolution mechanic
1: and it would be really nice if you were fighting against uh you know vampire overlords
0: oh yeah i mean you could go kill dracula (laughs) for good (laughs) i did not win the dracula dossier at the uh, silent auction at the annies i was so disappointed (laughs) My bid of $25 less than retail didn't hold. Ouch.
1: I can see it being difficult to get players to have buy-in with this campaign, at least off the bat, because they're trying to overthrow this regime that their characters probably have you know grown up in or lived through and obviously have a lot of issues with. But the players themselves, they sort of need to step into it immediately and be like, oh, wait,
0: this is bad for reasons you got to make some reasons. And mm-hmm. it can't just be the guy kicks puppies. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's it's got to be a little more nuanced than that to really have an effect. Sticking with your Edge of the Empire theme, you really want those shades of gray.
1: Mm-hmm. It feels like it'd be a very improv-heavy game, which is fun for a lot of players and fun as a GM. It can be difficult for some players.
0: Yeah. If you're not comfortable with lateral thinking, both as a player and a GM, I think it's going to be difficult, right? Because you're not going to have a list of moves in front of you that are going to let you approach a problem mm-hmm. right you're, you're not going to have a playbook like like dungeon world right where you pick one of these three things right there's no 4e power <laughs> on your character sheet that's going to address the concerns you have in this type of intrigue and political campaign
1: yeah i think anytime the gm is playing not individual enemies but an organization it really needs to be much more player directed because otherwise the GM has essentially infinite resources at their disposal. That will all make sense. You know, right. if the secret police shows up, you don't know, okay, in-game that would happen.
0: Right, right. And then, I mean, as a GM, you've got to provide a variety of challenges and opportunities. The players can't always be on their back foot, right? At some point, they have to get a chance to launch the counteroffensive. Mm-hmm. And you've also got to think of opportunities that they'll seize onto as ways to do that. And those have to come with logical parameters that make it a challenge. I mean, if if there's no limits on what they can do, right? If there's no story structure around the challenge, then you lose that. (laughs) You lose all of the benefit of this type of campaign, right? You you get no impact from it. Now you're just rolling dice and doing skill checks.
1: It sounds like you'll need to do a fair amount of world building at the beginning. But of course, you only need to do it once, not every session (laughs)
0: Yeah, I think as a GM you want to know your world pretty well. I don't know that you necessarily need to impart one hundred percent of that on the players. No, yeah,
1: they they'll figure it out as they go along, but it needs to be pretty concrete. If if their task is to sort of take down this structure, then the structure needs to be fairly well defined. Yeah. You it, can't
0: yeah. you can't be kind of like building it and adding onto it in very, very right. amorphous shape to <laughs> to this target right. if if all they're doing is taking down that target. So how do you feel about 4E style skill challenges to resolve some of these things?
1: I've never hated them, but I certainly never really liked them. I think they had potential, a certain number of successes before a certain number of failures. I think there's a lot more that can be done with that mechanic to make it seem much less gamey.
0: Yeah. Yeah, but I'm thinking that might be a way to resolve more intricate plots Right, like, let's say you want to kidnap a diplomat to put outside pressure on the duke. You've got scouting that you have to do. You've got the actual <laughs> smash and grab team, right? You need the distraction to get his guards out of the way. You need to get all the information required to know how to hide him, right? You need to scout his personal defenses and, and whatever he has. You've got all these different things that have to go into it you can fail on some of those things. You don't have to do it 100% for it to be successful, but you need to hit five or six of these different objectives if you're going to successfully kidnap this guy. And if you go too poorly, right, if you're just horribly unprepared or your extraction team completely blows it or whatever, you're just going to fail. Right. right, you
1: don't even kidnap the guy. Although you may have had you know, a few successes in there, a few positive
0: Outcomes, but you still failed. Yeah, I mean, a failed kidnapping could still have the same effect, mm-hmm. right? And, and that's that's why I kind of like the idea of which ones you fail will color how the world reacts to what you did within sort of one scenario. I think that's pretty easy
1: to put together with uh, like a small flow chart yeah. or, or even just like a chart of if this succeeds, then this, if this succeeds, then this, you know, and then jot down a few ideas about particular combinations of successes or failures.
0: Yeah, and it's another way to separate the party in the story without splitting the party from a, oh no we're going to get screwed because we don't have all of our abilities, right (laughs) Alright, do you hear that, Ishan? That is me baiting multiple hooks. Well, then let's move on to the Character Creation Forge. Before we do that let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us.
1: We do love hearing from you
0: you can tweet at Shane at Mundangerous, that's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at, at evil at carne that's Malice Minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPTCast.
1: You can also email us if you can fit it into 140 characters at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com.
0: And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrillCast.com. We're also on
1: Facebook and Instagram at Thrill.
0: So this week in the Character Creation Forge, we are building a knife fighter. In case you couldn't tell, this
1: is a fighter who fights with daggers in 5e parlance. That
0: staple of wizards everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) The offhand weapon of choice of the rapier-wielding rogue, right? We're just going to only use that.
1: Daggers, I think, have gotten a bit of short shrift in 5e because they used to be the go-to choice for lots of characters in earlier editions. But there's not a whole lot of reason to use a dagger in 5th edition except... If you're going to throw it. Because you can use it offhand, it's got a decent range. You can toss it with decks, which is
0: important for yep. thrown
1: weapons. To get the most out of it, you really need to be able to pile on more damage, right? It's got such a small damage die. But that doesn't really matter to a character whose main source of damage isn't coming from their damage die. Yeah, so a paladin, for example. Dagger Smite. <laughs> yeah. Oh hmm. Nope, hmm.
0: nope, no, that's not what we're doing, Ishan.
1: <laughs> we're going for volume. <laughs> And then in that case, I think we're going to have quite a bit of fighter. And if we need to
0: pack on extra dice, bit of rogue. Yeah. So we're going to go with the champion fighter that will give us three attacks and an increased crit range. So we are hoping to maximize our chances of critting so that we can throw the rogue sneak attack onto it.
1: Uh, We're also going to be using two weapon fighting. So that'll actually bump us to
0: four attacks. And we'll take the two weapon fighting feat. Uh, We'll talk about why in a minute. (laughs) <laughs> but <laughs> that will rules. also that will also help.
1: <laughs> so the actual build is champion fighter 11 swashbuckler rogue 9. know it doesn't sound very fancy, but it puts out a lot of damage, a lot of attacks and is very very durable. Yeah,
0: so four attacks around, you've got flexibility between whether those are melee or ranged. We'll talk about how that works in just a second. You're doing 46 sneak attack damage on one of those and because you're rolling four attacks with an increased crit range, you should crit pretty often. So you'll be throwing your sneak attack damage in on whichever one you crit with.
1: Basically just wait for that crit.
0: And because you're a swashbuckler, you've got very easy ways to trigger sneak attack damage. You know, If you're solo engaged with a creature, you can sneak attack it. If you're flanking a creature, you can sneak attack it. If you're hidden within 30 feet, you can sneak attack it.
1: Right. Your dex based, make use of those stealth checks to gain advantage because advantage on all your attacks right. is
0: really gonna increase your crit odds. Yep. Roll two d20s for each attack <laughs> with an increased crit range.
1: And of course your dex based. So you've got all those goodies from the rogue on Kenny Dodge, evasion. I mean you still
0: get expertise. Four. <laughs> <Yep. laughs> Alright,
1: so why do we
0: take the two weapon fighting feet? Because it's really hard to draw a weapon in fifth edition. Huh especially if you intend to throw it (laughs) because then after you throw a weapon you don't have a weapon in your hand yeah so the way the rule is written uh you can draw a weapon as part of your attack action cool but you only get one attack action per round so you can draw one weapon per round Mm -hmm. the two weapon fighting feat lets you draw a second weapon when you take the attack action so that's cool now you have two daggers in your hands but here's the problem when you throw them, now you start the round with none. So you'll draw two weapons, you'll stab twice with them, and then you'll have the choice of do I throw one or both, or do I just stab a couple more times? Yeah, dealer's choice. But if you start with your daggers in your hands, then you can throw your two daggers, and then <laughs> draw two more daggers as part of your attack action, and then throw them again. I don't care. Do whatever you want. <laughs>
1: I know it sounds like we're being pedantic, but when we build in the Forge, we build Adventures League Legal. So if you are dealing with a cranky GM who's just like, I don't think you can draw that many daggers this round.
0: Yeah, which is also the reason why we didn't make the dart thrower for this build because there's no way to draw more than one dart per round.
1: Yeah, it's really terrible.
0: You could throw two darts per round. If you had them both in
1: your hands already. Yeah, Yeah, exactly.
0: So tell me, Ishin, how did your character become a knife fighter? Wanted to use darts.
1: (laughs) <laughs> was a champion dartman and uh, also a, kn- a knife thrower in the circus. Oh, okay. Target person on a spinning wooden wheel and would fling daggers and darts at them, but hopefully not actually at them.
0: And I mean, I'm sure you had expertise in acrobatics, so yeah. you were bouncing on a trampoline while you were throwing right, daggers a sly
1: flourish but of course you know circuses are a tough business and they were in debt and one day they couldn't pay the protection money and it was a terrible fire
0: <laughs> <laughs> were you involved in that fire
1: no no very this is a noble knife fighter <laughs> oh okay <laughs> <laughs> who now unfortunately needs to make his money in seedy taverns finding marks and winning
0: games this was a noble knife fighter. <laughs> uh, yeah. He's still got a heart of tin, yeah, tin maybe? Yeah. yeah, Yeah. What about yours? So my knife fighter was a butcher's apprentice. He learned very practical knife skills from a young age. And then his town was raised, probably by orcs, but an invading army maybe. It doesn't matter. Point is, he became a refugee. He got swept away in the crowd of refugees into the capital, like so many of them, fell into a life of destitution in the street, and had to do what he had to do to get by. When you're possessed of some spectacular knife skills, you're going to put those knives to work. What butcher, what restaurant, what chef is going to allow some street urchin into his beautiful kitchen, where he is going to serve food to his guests, his valued guests, that would make me angry. I might find other uses for these knives. Yeah, yeah, like a knife in a kidney.
1: <laughs> for pie. For pie. Right.
0: Also doubles down if you can get cook's utensils as your artisan's tools from your background. <laughs> You've got cooking down pat. No prestidigitation required, my
1: friend. I would still take tavern brawler just so I could use the tongs as a
0: weapon, a oh, deadly yeah. weapon. Or a or, uh, sushi You can use your sushi chopsticks.
1: Just the the mat.
0: (laughs) Oh, man. This is turning into a Kill Bill scene. Fistfuls of rice. (laughs) Pocket rice. Oh, dear. All right. If you want to support the show, the easiest way to do that is to leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And if you're willing to do that and help us out, we'll read your five-star review on the air.
1: You can also find us on Stitcher.
0: It's like a Pandora
1: for podcasts. If you like or favorite us there, the algorithm will help other people find us. And we do have a new five-star review. This is called Gem of a Gaming Podcast by Davey SP. Compared to most RPG podcasts, which are hyper-focused and have low charisma scores, TPT is a delight. The hosts are huge fans, but also bring insight and wit to their gaming discussions. They focus mostly on D&D 5th edition, but talk about broader concepts enough that it's great for any GM or player. Thanks, Davey.
0: Yeah, and hopefully someday this will sink in on Ishan <laughs> that we're doing our mission by focusing on D&D 5e but speaking in general terms.
1: I just don't want people to think, oh, it's only about 5e and I don't play 5e, so I'm going to go home and not listen to their amazing witty repartee.
0: I don't think anybody who's read our reviews on iTunes could think that we're just about 5e and only for 5e players. And also, no one thinks our repartee is witty. Well, that too. Yeah. Up to and now including my mother. <laughs> Hi, Shane's mom. She won't hear this for like six more months.
1: That's okay. <laughs>
0: I'll still be here. <laughs> All right. What do we have planned for next week's episode? We'll be talking about murder mysteries. And in the character creation forge, we're building the investigator investments. All right. Well that's it for episode 57 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we've lived up to our name. But either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening.
1: your players very invested remember it doesn't mean railroading you don't need it's not it's a plot hook it's not a tunnel a boat are we sticking with the fishing metaphor it could be a boat i guess it's it's yeah. not a boat it's yeah. a, not a plot island this is called gem of a jam <laughs>
0: <laughs> gem, of a, gem jamming. of a jamming it's a gem J-jast. of a jamming podcast you got there guys jize jize
1: This is called gem of a (laughs) jamming... Oh my god. (laughs)